Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Cross the Brazos and Waco. Fight hard and I'll make it by dawn. Cross the Brazos and Waco. Welcome to the Waco History Podcast. I'm Randy Lane, great-grandson of Waco architect Roy E. Lane. Over a hundred years ago, he designed the Alico Building, Hippodrome, and other well-known landmarks. My co-host, Dr. Stephen Sloan of Baylor's Oral History Institute, is helping me learn Waco's known and unknown stories. On this episode, Prehistoric Waco. Millions of years before anyone lived here, nature conditioned Waco as a major crossroads. The Brazos River is really the key to why Waco's here. Dr. Joe Yelderman, a professor in Baylor's Department of Geosciences, tells us how geology and natural history played a role in shaping Waco. Probably some engineers think they figured out where to put I-35, but 200 million years ago, it was already decided. <laughs> <laughs> and now, join us on a trip into Waco's past. Cross the Brazos and Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and Waco I'm safe when I reach San Antonio well, welcome back to the Waco History Podcast. Stephen, you have a special guest today. Thanks, Randy. You're going to love our guest today. It's Dr. Joe Yelderman from over at Baylor. He is a geologist who teaches in the geology department, and he has all sorts of areas of research and expertise that I'm not going to go into. He's a smart guy, so I've checked his bona fides, and he is a smart guy. I brought him in today because I thought as we do this journey exploring Waco history, it would be great early on to have a lay of the land. Mm -hmm. Let, let's start out at the at the landscape itself. And, and Joe's here to answer some of our questions that we have about this place we live in and some of the geological features of that place. And Joe and I were talking before this podcast and we were saying, you know, most of our guests, the, the farthest we go back is 100 years, 150 years, whatever. But you go back way farther. Isn't that right? <laughs> Yeah, I like to start about 200 million years ago. That's a <laughs> nice place to start. Now, that is some Waco history. That's some deep back there history. All right, so what does Waco look like way back in the day like that? Well, if we start about that time, we're talking about the time when South America and North America kind of collided into each other. That left some wrinkled formations in geology we refer to as the Washita Thrust Belt, mm -hmm. which is expressed in the southeast corner of Oklahoma as the Washita Mountains on the surface. But they're actually also right here in Waco. They're just about 8,000 feet or so below us, covered with sediment. And so we don't think of them, but they are the underlying structure that relates to the Balcones Fault Zone, which runs through Waco and affected a lot of the landscape that we have here even today. People think of it as the escarpment that occurs farther south as kind of like a balcony or balconis. And so we've got the Washita Mountains that are deep down underneath us. Uh, what happens after that? Basically, that formed a, a kind of a boundary between the western part of the state, which is basically solid sort of underlying rock, and the southeastern part, which is kind of a sediment basin and related to the coast with the, the Gulf Coast now. And so it's kind of a hinge line in some ways. And not only is the fault line there, but it left a, 
some geologic formations that coincide with that, the Austin Chalk, which is the white rock that you see out at Cameron Park and the okay. bluffs. Yeah. That underlies places throughout central Texas, and there are shale or clay-type formations on each side of it. So even back with animals and early inhabitants, the ridge of the limestone formed kind of a pathway between the muddy prairies to the east and west, and it was a it was a path that animals and people followed from day one. I like to tell people that probably some engineers think they figured out where to put I-35, but 200 million years ago, it was already decided. <laughs> if we want to see that fault line, that back Balcones fault, where do we look? I mean, where, where do we see evidence of that? Well, that's a, that's a good question, Steve, because there really isn't a fault or a fault line. We we hear people refer to that. It's a zone. There's lots of faults kind of parallel or subparallel to each other, offset a little bit here and there. The faulting is much greater, meaning there's more displacement to the south than as you go north. They're a little smaller. So it's kind of a zone. It's not a specific area. But you can see the faults in the rocks at Cameron Park if you look at some of the bluffs. There are some places in Waco where some of the shales and the chalk are just you walk two, three feet, and you go from one to the other because there's a, a fault that puts some wow. juxtaposition next to each other. And sometimes that causes you know construction problems. So you can see it in different places, but it's not a real obvious place. The escarpment that we have here, which is a ridge of, of hills that overlooks the lake, that's an erosional escarpment that the the white rock or the Austin chalk kind of is more resistant than the shales around it. And so it's kind of left up as a, a set of hills there. When you go south, get about Round Rock, the escarpment, the hills don't face to the west anymore. They face to the east like they do in Austin. Hmm. And uh, at Mount Bunnell, you can, that fault, that's a displacement from the fault. And you see you, the hill is to the west and it faces east. The downthrown side is to the east. Interesting. So, so it kind of switches a little bit there. We have an erosional scarp that parallels the Balcones faulting. They have an actual sort of fault line scarp that parallels the faulting down there but faces the opposite direction. Now, when I think fault zone, and I, I'm thinking of other fault zones, I think of activity. And, of course, Texas is a really low-risk earthquake state. What are the reasons behind that? Why is that fault zone so inactive? Most of the faulting in that occurred a long time ago. The Miocene era, people think of, which was about 35 million years ago, was the most recent faulting that we know had a lot of movement. You might get some activation if you pressure it up with fluids or something like that, a place here or there, but we don't know of any active tectonic movement now. Other places have active faults, like if you go out to California, something like that. Those are active tectonic zones. Texas is pretty stable, so the faulting's old, doesn't move. But we do have some high shrink swell soils and clays and some unstable slopes that will slump and, and move. They're in the same place the fault zone is sometimes, and people think of those as the fault line or the faults. Uh, but they're not really faulting. They're just local uh, surface movements. Okay. And then we have to blame that for our foundation problems. We That's exactly <laughs> right. So when we were talking about the escarpments and stuff over by the lake, are you talking Lakeshore Drive type of area where it kind of goes off by Woodway there? That's a perfect place. If you look at where Lakeshore Drive drops down toward the lake, that road always has problems. <laughs> and that's because you've left the chalk and you're underneath the shale that underlies the chalk, which is known as the Eagle Ford Shale. That shale is very soft, and when it gets wet, it swells, and it's less supportive. So you put a lot of weight on it, or something starts to move. And so the, the roadbed doesn't have a good foundation, and they have lots of problems. Once you get back up on the hill, then the road's in pretty good shape. And so I know the, the lake here in Waco was a man-made feature. 
was it chosen to be in that area specifically because it would kind of contain it in a way? Yes. The lake itself, which is, even though we always say Lake Waco, it's a reservoir. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a natural feature, but it was built in that location really for two major reasons. One, the valley narrows there and the underlying rocks are shale, which are very slowly permeable material. So they're a good seal for no leakage underneath the dam. However, the other reason was that the water in the Bosque River originally was much better than the water in the Brazos. Mm. The Brazos has got some salt that up in the salt fork of the Brazos that makes it a salty source. And it's such a big river, it was a little harder to manage with a dam and so forth. So the first, I don't remember the exact date, but I think it's like 20, 1929, somewhere in there, the first Lake Waco Dam was built. Mm-hmm. And then that silted up quite a bit. And so it it almost went dry or was inadequate during the drought of the 1950s. Mm. And so they built a bigger dam uh, just a little bit downstream, sort of a lake on top of a lake, if you will, <laughs> and made it bigger and better. And so now we, we do have adequate water. Interesting. And that's what happened to a lot of Spiegelville. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> underneath the lake now. So Joe, I know an area of interest of yours is hydrology. And so when does the Brazos, we think that Brazos has been there forever, but when does that kind of enter the story you know i'm not sure i can give you an exact date on that i want an hour actually <laughs> <laughs> but i think that my understanding would be that's at least maybe a hundred thousand years old that that drainage basin there's some ancestral brazos evidence that's kind of interesting if you go around say up in the blackland prairie around west texas and you get up on the hills you'll find gravels And those gravels are from some ancestral river, a much larger, older river than the present Brazos. And it's kind of funny because the topography is inverted. In other words, the channel, the low part that held the gravel, when the river moved and cut down in another area, it left those gravels out there on the prairie. And the rest of the prairie eroded easier because it didn't have that gravel to armor. And so what was the low part, the channel, became the high part on top of the hill. And so if you wander around, you can find these nice gravels, not very thick, but just on the on the top of the hills in the Blackland Prairie. That's hmm. interesting. The other thing that related to when we think of the river now, we think of the springs. And, we, and we, as we're thinking of the modern history of that area, those springs in that area. The thing I would say interesting about Waco as a place from a natural history standpoint is the Brazos River is really the key to why Waco's here. The Austin Chalk that I talked about before is right at the river level near Indian Spring. And Indian Spring is, there's some sand and gravel from river deposits right on top of the Austin Chalk. And rain soaks into that sand and gravel and sort of piles up because it can't go into the chalk very well. It's less permeable. And so it kind of builds up into a little water table and then it flows out at the spring to the river. And there are several spring openings along there between the Suspension Bridge and Franklin Avenue. And that was the area where the Indian Village had a nice, good supply of clean water that was permanent. And that was where you crossed the river because the chalk was a hard rock bottom. If you go farther south, you get muddy and you bog down, even even animals and, and wagons, certainly. And the next good crossing was up between Whitney and up that direction. So this was a natural crossing. So that river crossing was the the reason that Waco's here. And the Indian village was, I think, unusual because it was permanent, like many of the nomadic Indians. And the reason it was permanent was not only was it a transportation node, but it had that spring as a water source. 
and the sandy sort of sandy soils were what we call a loam, little sand and clay mixed together. And even fairly primitive tools could could actually garden and and manage that. And they did have orchards and gardens so they could maintain a food supply a little more year round than other camps or, or sites. And so the river and that hard rock crossing is why Waco's here. It's interesting also that you can still see that spring activity. I wonder if it's because Waco hasn't put a burden on aquifers really like other places have, but you can still see that spring activity down underneath the bridge, suspension bridge. Yeah, the spring area was kind of, I guess, revived a little bit or protected or embellished a little bit. I don't know what the right word would be, but the Daughters of the American Revolution did some work there to sort of preserve that area. And then the city, I think they gave it to the city and the city now managed Indian Spring Park. Not all the springs were preserved, but they're there and you can still see them. That was the original water supply for the Indian village and for the the town of Waco. Later, they drilled some shallow wells. They tried using the river water, but you have to kind of treat that. And eventually, they went to other water sources like the Deep Trinity Aquifer and then building the reservoir. The other phenomenon you see are the mineral springs, which they had in Waco and out in Marlin that kind of became tourist destinations at at some point. Yeah, that's uh, another really fascinating part of Waco's history. Waco was known for a while as Geyser City, and that's because the first well that was drilled was into that aquifer in Waco was in 1889. In 1889, Captain Joseph Bell had a, I think it was a laundry there that he was trying to supply water to, and they drilled a well, and it came in. And this is a what we call a confined aquifer. It's under pressure, which some people refer to as like artesian pressure. And so the water rises much higher than the top of the, the sand that the water's in due to that sort of pressure. And the pressure here was high enough that it actually rose above the surface into a well that flowed at the surface. That water they used in Waco was a, it was a pretty phenomenal time. But because that water's quite old, and by old I can give you a number, <laughs> it's somewhere between uh, twenty-five to 40,000 years old. Because it's that old, it's been in contact with the rock a long time, and it's dissolved a lot of the minerals. And so that was the mineralization that people first experienced when they tasted that water and drank that water, which is much different than the shallow spring at Indian Spring or the river water. Because of the age of the water, I, this is gonna this is gonna play out. The well water has a long life. I think there's a lot of water down there, but as we continue to pump it, it's drawing that water down, decreasing the volume that there is. You can think of it like a savings account, <laughs> like a trust fund, you know, but it's not really earning interest. It's just sitting there as capital. And so you're taking out your capital and lowering the volume. It does get recharged about 70 miles to the west, but that takes about 25,000 years to get here. (laughs) That's pretty slow. Yeah, so it's not going to recharge in our lifetime, but there's a lot of water there. And if you quit pumping it, that water level will recover somewhat to a higher level, not to higher than it was. It'll always be lower, higher than it may be while you're pumping it. Did it go dry at one point? The deep aquifer, no. Okay. No, I can't imagine it actually going dry. Mm -hmm. It could become impractical to keep extracting it. And so what were some of the the benefits of the mineral water versus the spring water? I don't know that there are really any benefits. Uh, what's <laughs> perceived. In, yeah, perceived. I think what was interesting, if you look at some of the newspaper clippings from back in those days, you know, at first the water was just fantastic. People thought it was endless because there was so much. And so they just let it flow for a while. Within a few years, it quit flowing because <laughs> they lost that pressure. 
But also when they found out it was a little mineralized and salty, then they decided it, it cured everything and it was medicinal. <laughs> and that went away as well. I thought the funniest one I ever read was one that said it was a fat remedy. You know, it, it could, and I thought to myself, you know, if you just drink water, you'll lose a lot of weight. You know? <laughs> so that's true. <laughs> so you talked about that hard rock crossing. That's the reason why the suspension bridge is there, I guess, as well. That's exactly right. Because that was where we crossed the river, the disadvantage of the hard rock crossing was you could only cross when the water was kind of low. When high flow was, you couldn't cross the river. So the suspension bridge was essentially built because that's where we crossed the river. And it was built to accommodate a way to cross the river during high flows. And when that was built, and if I recall, that was uh, 1871, it was the only bridge across the Brazos. So Waco was the only place you could cross the Brazos in high water. And at that time, I think Waco was even more populated than Dallas because of the time frame. It was a very famous crossing. As you know, Stephen, I really enjoy the the song, you know, Cross the Brazos in Waco because it's so... Great song. Yeah, it is. It is a great <laughs> song. And it's so symbolic of, of Waco and why we're here. Yeah. And of course, now someone goes down and looks at the river and they're not really looking at a river anymore. That's correct. We built a low water dam just downstream from LaSalle Avenue. Actually, we've modified that dam recently, but it's basically was the idea that the river, even though the Brazos River is the second largest river in Texas to the Rio Grande, it starts actually in the Rocky Mountains in New Mexico. It also is in our area, gets very low in the summer. And sometimes it would get so low that you would see things like old tires or things in the river. And it, <laughs> it wasn't real appealing. So by damming it up and putting some water in there, it's much more aesthetically pleasing and you can get transportation up and down all the time and so forth. So that was a real boon to Waco and downtown. I, I don't think they ever anticipated sail gating and, and the stadium, but <laughs> they did uh, anticipate boat traffic and aesthetics. It is funny you mentioned that because it's always full no matter when you look at it, even when we're going through a pretty dry period. And where I'm from in Tulsa, they have the Arkansas going right through there. And it's quite often dry and it really kind of feels depressing. People that are from there kind of talk about the mood of the city like, oh, the, the river's full. It's looking good, feeling good today. You know, in Waco, we get to always feel good. Oh, that, I, I haven't <laughs> thought about that, but that's great. I was just listening to a song today called Peace Like a River. Mm -hmm. And a nice river, especially if it's, it's kind of glassy looking, gives you a peaceful oh, yeah. uh, feeling and a good feeling. So that's a good point, uh, Randy. <laughs> yeah, so the river would have looked really differently in different seasons back for most of its life. That's yeah. right. In fact, there was one time during recorded history where it was considered to be not flowing. There were some puddles of water, but they weren't connected and they weren't going anywhere. Anywhere. That would be a time you'd say, well, it dried up in Waco. Well, let's go back. We skipped the mammoths. Oh, so, yes. So tell us when that enters the story. And, and of course, I think it's interesting for, kind of from your discipline and your viewpoint. There's a lot of questions. I don't know if you'll ever really know exactly what happened. We've, we've got some fairly good ideas, but it was a what we call a nursery herd. And what's unusual or, I guess, unique about the mammoths in Waco is that this was a sort of a mass death that was natural, that was not human-induced. It wasn't a kill site. It happened before we knew that there were any humans at this location. 
And so it was a natural phenomenon, a paleontological site rather than an archaeological site. And most other big areas where a lot of mammoths or a lot of large animals like that died, it was due to human activity. The only other accumulations of large animals are those that occurred one at a time or a few at a time, like at tar pits or or something like that. So it's a it's a unique site and very special to the natural history of North America. And so it's really we're really lucky in Waco to have such a unusual site right here in town really. It's connected to water and the Brazos River. It occurred when we think was a drought. They were looking for water and then there was a flood that caught them in a situation where they they couldn't get out and they got buried quickly. We don't know exactly what killed them. Whatever killed them, they they died, were buried fairly quickly and preserved. And preserved quite well. Yes. So is it kind of like there was a drought, so the ground was kind of dry, and then when the water came quickly, it was kind of like a flash flood, maybe? My interpretation, which might be disagreeing with a number of other geologists and uh, paleontologists, is that if they were trapped there, they got a lot of rain, and then they were down where there might be some steep banks. Okay. And those banks got very slick, and so it's hard for large animals to get up slick banks like that. If the river was swelling and they didn't have a place to go there, so what happened to them? It's possible they died for some other reason, but whatever they died from or caused them to die, they got buried fairly quickly. There might have been a few bones sticking out, but otherwise they would have been scavenged and disarticulated and the bones would have been scattered but these were preserved as steve said very well that's also a unusual aspect of this particular site this is a larger question but in general as you think of natural history versus human history how do you introduce that to people if we think of someone that's listening that that's not familiar with your area of study or how they should think about it versus history as as i've been talking about it and randy's been asking about it well, I think human history and natural history are almost all always related. And so Waco's history has a lot to do with going back that 200 million years. One of the things we, we haven't talked about is those shales that are on both sides of the Austin Chalk, the limestone ridge that became sort of a transportation pathway. Those shales on each side form some of the richest soils in the nation. We refer to that as the Blackland Prairie. It's kind of a confusing note. I think you and I, Steve, have talked about this on time, is that cotton was a big commodity for Waco. There's quite a bit of history in Waco that relates to cotton, but there were two big stages. There was the early cotton, which was along the river in those sandy soils that were still pretty easy to plow and to form and farm and so forth. And that was early enough in the 1800s that there were still slaves involved in that cotton production. But the Blackland Prairie wasn't broken until the early 1870s. You had to develop a new kind of plow and the ability to to turn that sod with those deep bunch grasses and their thick roots. And so that was post-Civil War, and it was really sharecrop and tenant farmers that, that formed the Blackland Prairie. So it was a second big burst of, of cotton economy in Waco. They're both very important and very different. Waco really becomes kind of a new south, really a town of the new south during that period. You know, we, we have this ongoing discussion, is, is Waco western or southern? <laughs> so give us your answer to that that question. Is Waco western or southern? Is, are we in the west right now or are we in the south? Yes. 
<laughs> Waco is at the crossroads. That's a, a theme that's been used to talk about Waco a lot of times, but it's really true. If you go west of Waco, you're in the west. And if you go east of Waco, you're in the south. <laughs> and uh, I like to talk about going east of west, but <laughs> because of the community. But it's, it's true. As we go west, we get limestone soils, thin sort of soils and shorter grasses, more sort of semi-arid climate soil relationship. And it was ranch land. If we go east, we start picking up the uh, thicker clay soils and more rainfall as we go east, and you pick up a lot of farmland and a different culture. We're at the crossroads, and the river and the the rocks, the way they came together in Waco, made it the place it is today. I thought of that. I was driving back to town from the west recently, and I was trying to notice the prickly pear cactus and use that as a metric, like when it ran out. And of course, I got to Waco and we still weren't out of prickly pear cactus. But So I think that answer, yes, is true. I, 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 think, I think we're in both. Some uh, vegetation is not the best to use as an indicator. Vegetation does work for an indicator. I have tried to use cactus before, too, and then I found cactus in, in Central America in the rainforest. I realized that cactus <laughs> can live in a lot of different places, but other plants can't, so we see cactus more in the, in the arid places. It is very different. I think the biggest difference is if you travel out... Highway 84, the main western corridor going out of Waco, you're in farmland as you leave Waco, and it kind of go about Coriel Creek. When you drop down through there, you've lost it. We're starting hills, thinner soils. You get on the other limestones, and you get a few farms out there, but it's mostly ranch land as you head west. It's interesting, as you were talking about earlier, these, these corridors of travel. If we went back far enough, we might find an animal trail that then becomes a human trail that then becomes a horse trail, that then becomes a wagon trail that maybe ends up being an interstate. Absolutely. One of the things that we also talk about is the the fact that the crossing in, in Waco and some others farther south, like in Salado and places, were, were places where many of the big cattle drives came through, like the Chisholm Trail. There were multiple trails and multiple herds that came, but they kind of followed a pathway, and they've River crossings were important. Water supply was important. And so there were some natural pathways where all of these things did occur. And many of the smaller streams, as you cross that ridge of rock, were very shallow and easy to cross. You can see wagon tracks preserved in the Belton area and Salado area, and you can see other evidence of that. Of course, the human history is still there from those cattle trucks. So I know that weather phenomena may not be anywhere near your specialty, but I have heard this rumor, and it usually is in conjunction with the infamous tornado that we've had here in Waco, that when early settlers came to this area, they asked the Waco Indians if this particular place was prone to tornadoes. And they said, no, the natural formation of the hills here and then also the river would keep you safe from tornadoes. And then, of course, we had the big tornado in the 50s. Is there any truth to that from your perspective, being safe from tornadoes because of the natural topography? Well, topography can protect you from some wind and storms and things like that. Tornadoes are an unusual weather phenomenon that I have found that they can occur almost everywhere, <laughs> some places more often than others. So it might have been a low probability, but it wasn't perfectly safe. But as a geologist, you remember I started it 200 million years ago. Mm -hmm. Even the Indians weren't here very long. Their data set might not have been enough to say it was perfectly <laughs> safe. But we are in a fairly high tornado area in general. Mm -hmm. 
And so the odds that we could get a tornado here, I think, are, are still pretty good. So that's another historical myth busted. Yeah, we're gonna get on a <laughs> we're gonna get a meteorologist on at some point and see if they agree with okay. you or they disagree okay. with you. We can go grab bag here. Just some other kind of interesting uh, geological qualities of this particular area. You talked about some unique elements of this place as a crossroads. What would be some other things that you find interesting? Well, one of the things that um, I like to study are springs. And, and I find that most of the towns along the sort of I-35 corridor and most all of the small towns were originally springs were the water source. Until about the mid-1800s, springs were the water source for pretty much everything. And then we began to be able to dig shallow wells, which were first dug by hand. A little later on, we were able to drill deeper to more dependable or permanent sort of water aquifers. And windmills came in play and took advantage of some of that shallow water. But if you look at the town of West, the original name of that town was Bold Spring. The history, as I know it there, goes something like this. Bold Springs was on the southern side of of West, and it actually occurs where the Austin Chalk and the Shale meet. And there's a major fault there that's part of the Balcones faulting. So the same sort of players that we have here in Waco, in a sense, that several ranches shared that spring. And later, the town drilled shallow wells here and there, but eventually they drilled down to the deeper Trinity Aquifer like we have in most of the surrounding communities here today. The story of how it got changed from Bowl Spring to West was interesting. Uh, Turns out that the railroad came through in the 1870s, somewhere around there. And when the railroad came through, they kind of went through the ridge, the easy pathway. The I guess the post office, the postal clerk was a, a man named Thomas West. He uh, happened to have some land up there and, and settled where the railroad came through. And the town became known as the West Mail Stop and then eventually became West. And most of the town moved up there, including the local Baptist church. They moved up to the top of the hill where the where the railroad and the, and the city, the roads were after after that. And they didn't need the spring so much anymore. That's interesting. Yeah, because you talk about water supply. And one of the things I know about Texas that's unusual is besides Caddo, we don't really have any naturally occurring bodies of water of large size, sort of reservoirs like that. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, most of Texas has some small lakes here and there, some playa lakes up north, some river meanders that are some small lakes along some of the river valleys, some sinkholes, you know, out on the Edwards Aquifer, but no real large natural lakes. So Caddo is the only one in it's unusual. So we built reservoirs and that's our water supply. And reservoirs are a good way to store water. We have very seasonal water, heavy rains in spring and fall and long, dry, hot summers, but they also evaporate a lot of water. And so groundwater was the, usually the, the choice of water supply in the rural areas and where you got large populations, you couldn't get the water out quick enough and easy enough so you convert it to to surface water supply but we lose a lot of that to evaporation and the future of water supply is going to be pretty challenging Mm -hmm. as our lakes silt up and our population increases we're going to have to be pretty creative and maybe a little more conservative and you mentioned artesian water so and of course 1889 that date you gave is it's fairly late for them to be tapping into the aquifer how deep would you have to go if we wanted to to drill down and tap into this aquifer, how deep would we have to go to get to it? In the downtown area, mm-hmm. that's probably about 1,200 feet. As you go to eastern McLennan County, it's over 3,000 feet deep. Western McLennan County, 500 or so, so 600, something like that. Depends on exactly where you are, whether you're on a hill or in a valley. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but west to east, the rocks are dipping to the east 
and so they get deeper as they dip to the east. But the water level, when they first drilled it, remember, was flowing to the surface, mm-hmm. and that water level now in some of the wells in McLennan County is over 900 feet below the surface. So that's a pressure drop. You haven't started dewatering the aquifer, but you've dropped the pressure over 1,000 feet in many places in McLennan County. Joe, what are some misconceptions that people have uh, geologically about this area? I might get a little bit of pushback from... We like controversy. <laughs> oh, yes. Controversial. Yeah. Yeah. Is the idea that we're, we're safe from flooding because we have all these dams upstream from us. Something we haven't really talked too much about is flooding. The largest flood in Waco was in, uh, recorded was in 1936. And just to give you a little bit of an idea what that flood was like, University Parks at the Baylor campus would have been about eight feet deep. So most of the campus would be underwater, probably some of it, you know, into the second story of some buildings now. When that flood occurred, most of the campus was up on the hill over by Pat Neff and was, would have been out of the floodplain. But we built a lot of dams on the river, so we think now those dams can protect us. They can protect us from a lot of the smaller floods. But the Lake Waco Reservoir has some emergency gates to open if we get too much rain and that lake gets too full. It's an earthen dam, which means if it tops the dam, you could get erosion and lose the whole dam. So they have some gates to keep that from happening that they can open. And if the lake was full and they dropped those gates open wide, you could discharge 650,000 cubic feet per second. The 36 flood was 256,000 cubic feet per second. It was less than half of that. Okay, so it's only a tributary of the Brazos. The Bosque is only a tributary of the Brazos. So a really large flood in Waco would be, you know, depending on where you were, five, maybe eight miles wide, you wouldn't be able to cross the river. The bridges, some of them would be sticking up above the water, but the access points on each end would be underwater. It would be sort of in the downtown area where, and I think of Baylor campus because I'm a professor there, but it would be about 12th Street would be the edge of the water. So we can have a really, really big flood. It's not likely our best frequency scale, maybe what we call a 500-year flood, which has a 0.2% chance of happening (laughs) any given year. That's the thing. In a 100-year flood is not one that occurs every 100 years. A lot of people think that. That's a misconception. It's a flood that has a 1% chance of occurring any given year. In fact, you could have two or three in one year and not any for 500 years. The frequency, plus we don't have really good data on those. We've only been around here for a few hundred years taking records, so we're, we're guessing. We have some pretty good ideas, but we're still guessing. So I think that's a big misconception that, that we're, we're not going to get flooded anymore. That could happen anytime. Yeah, I, I get a, a little sense that you're scoffing at what we call patterns and trends when we're dealing with, you know, 150 years, 170 years of recorded history. Right. And we can see from the rock record, from the flooding, you know, along the river, evidence of past floods and things. And climate's going to change, too, or it appears to be changing. And it, it did change in the past. What the future holds is not perfectly predictable. But we do know this, and that is if you live along a river, the area on each side of the river, we call that the floodplain because it was formed by floods. And so it's kind of reasonable to figure that it might be flooded sometime again in the future. And I would think the, the massive amount of storage that we have upriver now decreases the chance of a minor flood, but it could create the mother of all floods if something were to happen. I think the really big flood, it would be a situation where the dams would not play a major part in a really big flood, like a 500-year type flood. Mm -hmm. But if we had another flood like 1936, we might be able to mitigate it to some extent. On the other hand, if we had a couple of those 
close together, it might be worse because we've stored a lot of water we have to release at the same time we're getting a lot more. Mm -hmm. It turns out that the 1936 flood was worse than it would have been naturally because of Lake Waco. The old Lake Waco held water back and they had to start releasing it and the storm was moving from west to east. And by the time they started releasing the water in Lake Waco, the old Lake Waco, the storm was over Aquila Creek. And that flood wave was coming down the Brazos just as we let out the water from the dam. And so we kind of had a bigger flood in Waco than we would have had without the dam. I don't know how much more, but higher. So sometimes you increase the flood, sometimes you decrease the flood. I've seen pictures of the 1913 flood and the 1936 flood. Is it 1913? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's correct. And neither one of those floods crested the suspension bridge. I mean, that you can still see the suspension bridge above the. But what you're talking about, the 500-year flood, would well inundate the suspension it would. bridge. It, yeah, we do what we can to protect ourselves in that moment, but you have to always think about you know the future and the historical record, and you know it's coming for us at some point, right? The idea that you can protect floods with dams is really only a partial protection because you have such a big river. The only way, I guess, to protect is if you build a dam big enough to hold back all the flood water and you keep it empty. And <laughs> and all of our reservoirs are designed as dual-purpose reservoirs to both store water for water supply and also to be half empty to give us some flood protection. So in the future, if we need more water supply, there's a tendency to keep them more full, which might give us less flood protection. Mm. But it does help us with less damage on an annual basis or a frequent basis. So there's some benefits to that. But we just have to keep that in mind. So that's a misconception that some people have that we're safe. The layperson, when they think of exceptional kind of geological features of the area, they think about Cameron Park. And so say I'm walking with you out there, we're on the river trail or we're walking around some of the trails. What would be some things that would be interesting for them to look for uh, as they look up the mountain there, or they look around and, and see some of the different features? Well, I think it's, you know, first of all, it's an unusual to have such a nice steep bluff right next to the river. And that's a great place to canoe and things because you're protected from the wind, not from tornadoes. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing I would notice really is that the Austin chalk is interbedded, meaning there are chalk beds and marl beds. There's like harder chalk-like beds that stick out a little bit and softer marl beds that are eroded back in a little bit. And that it's repeated very consistently, almost cyclically all the way up, up there. That's still somewhat of a enigma for some of us <laughs> to try to understand that. So that's, that's interesting. The other thing I think for them to think about, it's the same type of rock in general and the same age rock that are the cliffs of Dover that happened at the Ooh. same time around the world. And so it's not just Cameron Park. You're looking at a piece of world history that's got a lot of connections. And then if you get up close, you can see sometimes that those beds that are going horizontal, you follow one along with the eyes kind of horizontally from left to right or right to left, and all of a sudden you'll see it drop down a foot or two. And that's because there's a fault there. It's not active anymore, but there's a break in the rocks. Mm. And so you can see those in some of the bluffs if you're walking the trails of Cameron Park. I did a little video for the city, and I I would be remiss if I didn't share it with you now, and that is that if it's rainy or doing a lot of rain, don't go jogging on the trail below the bluffs because they naturally break off and, and fall. It's a very soft rock and fractured rock, and so it's not a good rock. No one should ever try to climb it. And you want to stay away from those bluffs and big, heavy rainstorms because they naturally sort of break down and fall. And you can see some big boulders that hit the trail, and you don't want to be 
on the trail when that happens. I was going to ask, is the reason that it's layered be a bad reason to ever try and like rock climb over there? The two big dangers of climbing uh, in Cameron Park on the rock called the Austin Chalk is, first of all, that because of the, the clay content and the morals especially, it gets very slick. Mm-hmm. Okay. The second thing is it's easily fractured and it's quite fractured and it flakes off so it's not a real stable rock so you can it can break away and you can slip and you you can lose your grip really easily so it's just a very dangerous type of rock to try to climb especially freehand now this is going to be a very newbie type of question but how does that the lover's leap area how does that form exactly because on one side it's super tall and steep and on the other side doesn't seem like it's very steep at all you mean on the other side of the river yes okay yeah it's an erosional thing the river just eroded and cut down into that chalk. That Austin chalk would have gone straight across the valley over to Lakeshore Drive, over where you go into, Bel- uh, was it Lacey Lakeview, Bellmeet, over there. You get across the river there, there's a there's a chalk bluff there. In fact, chalk bluff, the town, <laughs> is the other side of the river, and it's a chalk bluff there. And then the west side of the river is gentle and covered with alluvium. Hmm. So the river has sort of cut down there. Interesting, if you look at Steinbeck Bend, the long, big bend there, it's kind of entrenched in that rock, in the limestone, and it doesn't move much. You get south of Waco, and the river moves a lot. In big floods, it changes. And there was originally, I think this is kind of an interesting thing, there was a lot of, uh, I guess, economic ideas about making the river navigable and bringing ships up from the coast and things (laughs) like this. And they built some locks not too far south of Waco. And then in the flood, I think it was after the drought of the 50s when the big flood came that broke that drought, the river moved, the channel moved, and there's some concrete structures out in the middle of a pasture somewhere (laughs) that are way away from the river because the channel moved. North of us, that channel's pretty entrenched. And if you take a canoe from Whitney to Waco or anywhere just south of Whitney, you'll see the rock boundaries on the sides of the the river quite frequently and that's all the way down to about waco so again that's one of those changes where you go from limestone to more like shales and and softer rocks to the south i do know that an interesting part about that too is that i worry about baylor being down near the river where it could flood i think if you you check some of the history you'll find out that at one time baylor was offered the chance to move the campus to where now up in near Cameron Park area, up near where MCC is, which is a nice area. But they thought at that time, I think it was just too far away from town. It was way out there in the country. <laughs> uh, and then they got urban renewal, removed a lot of the, I guess, poor quality housing and issues that were right along the river in an effort to improve things. And that was cheap land that was just right next to the campus. And it was almost like they were lured down closer to the river. And and they've taken some advantages of being next to the river, like we mentioned earlier with the stadium and things, but but there are some risks involved with that as well. So MCC is way better suited to weather that 500-year flood. They're good. They're good. <laughs> it's not going to get up there. No. <laughs> Bosque River stage will be gone, but it won't get up to MCC. Good point. The baseball field will, will be gone, but they're good. I think water management is going to be a great challenge for all of us. I think the general community and the city of Waco have they've done a lot to try to be far thinking and, and, and be prepared for the future. They've they've you know, the reservoir is, is is 
been built and, and enhanced and so forth. And they've looked at other water sources and conjunctive use ideas. And so I think there's a lot of people trying to uh, to plan for the future. We do have some changes in water law and policy in Texas that are going to be fascinating to watch. Many people don't know it, but McLennan County has a groundwater district called the Southern Trinity Groundwater Conservation District that has sort of the challenge to manage the groundwater. And so uh, they work to do that. And we have the Brazos River Authority working with r- the river system and lakes. And we have the city of Waco with Lake Waco. And, and they have some river rights as well. And so there's a lot of complexity there as they try to work together and do some things in the future. And I guess I could throw this out is that Robinson, which is a little small community to the south of Waco, didn't really want to participate early on due to some of the issues between big town, little town, and probably some personal individual issues. They wanted their own water supply. Their deep Trinity Aquifer they felt was maybe inadequate. So they wanted to get some river water, but the water rights were late in time. And Texas has a a rule that it's first in time, first in right. So the older rights get first chance. So when the river gets low, only the oldest users, oldest rights are, are going to be met. So Robinson came about with this idea sort of late in the game. So they can only take water out when the river's up at a certain level. And they didn't want to use the lake and their water supply. So they built two reservoirs off the channel basically dug them out, made a levee, even lined one, and they pump water out of the river when it's high and store it in those reservoirs and then treat it and take it to the city. But because sometimes it's salty, they actually have a reverse osmosis, which is like a desalination-type treatment. So in some ways, I think both the reverse osmosis and the off-channel reservoir are the next step in reservoir building They don't fill up with sediment as quickly because you don't have a bed load and so forth. And so there's some advantages to that. So they, for different, maybe even wrong reasons, they have an example of maybe some things that all of us are going to be doing in the future. Interesting. Well, Joe, thanks so much for coming on today. I can say more than any other guest on this show, you really rock. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) I apologize. (laughs) It's okay. (laughs) Cross the Brazos and Waco. Thanks for listening to the Waco History Podcast. Like what you heard? Subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes so we can reach more listeners. You can find show notes and info on every episode at wacohistorypodcast.com and more info on Waco's past at wacohistory.org. Our theme music, used with permission, is Cross the Brazos at Waco, performed by the late Billy Walker. For more info on Billy's music, go to billywalker.com. We'll see you next time. As he dropped the guns that she hated In the muddy Brazos below Cross the Brazos at Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos at Waco I'll walk straight in old San Antonio Then the night came alive with gunfire He knew that at last it'd been found As the ranger's badge showed brightly El bandido lay on the ground 
Carmella knew he was dying That all of her dreams were in vain As she kissed his lips for the last time She heard him whisper again Cross the Brazos and Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and Waco I'm safe when I reach San Antonio I'm safe when I 